Hello and welcome to this session about which course to work on with Kit Harris. I'm Sim and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with a 15 minute talk by Kit and then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where he will respond to some of your questions. Now I would like to introduce our speaker for this session. Kit began his career as a trader in order to fund global health efforts. He explored a range of fields and career paths, deciding to donate substantially to Meta and AI charities. Now he investigates and communicates about what other philanthropists can do to help future generations. Here's Kit. Hello, my name is Kit. I work in philanthropy. A few years ago, I was a trader, and a few years before that, I was a student. This short talk is about figuring out which cause to work on. It's aimed at people who've realized that figuring that out is really important and are just getting started in doing so. If you want more detail on anything I say, um, use the questions app to uh, suggest a question for the Q&A at the end. In this talk, I'm going to assume that the consequences of our actions are what matters most. A lot of this talk will be applicable to other moral frameworks, but it will be most useful to those who think that the consequences matter most. Under that assumption, I find it useful to split cause prioritization questions into two major buckets. What even matters and what can we do about it? This is obviously extremely simple, but it seems like a good first step to make sense of such a broad question. The question of all of the problems in the world, what am I going to work on? So jumping in, what even matters? My first major assumption here is that the experiences of sentient beings are the main things that matter. So things like beings experiencing joy or beings experiencing pain, um, these kinds of things are what I think matter a lot. Um, this is a reasonably common view, um, but flagging it as something that other things I say will mostly make sense um, if you agree with, uh, even if you disagree with this, um, but I'm focusing a lot on the idea that these are the things like joy and pain are the things which matter most. If that's correct, one obvious question is which particular experiences matter? For example, how valuable is reducing suffering compared to increasing joy? Perhaps the biggest part of what matters is which beings matter? Um, everyone listening to this talk probably agrees that all humans alive today matter and we should care about them and we should take actions as if they matter basically as much as we, as you know, each individual one of us matters. But what about future generations? Should we consider people alive a thousand years from now when we're making policy decisions that affect those people? Um, which, if any, animals matter? Which animals should we um, care about and seek to protect? Interestingly, I don't think that these are just opinions that you pick and choose. Like, you know, I am an animal person or I am not an animal person. I've seen a lot of people make progress on these questions to change their mind about uh, these things. For example, if you care about whether I am having a good or bad time right now, then that's probably because there's something inside my head which can have good or bad experiences. Whether a particular animal does or does not have that thing also is a question with an answer. It's not an easy question. It's not an answer that we are close to having any great confidence about, but it's the kind of thing that you might in fact be able to make progress on. The kind of thing that if you look into it, you may change your mind about which animals matter. Excitingly, after writing this talk, I discovered that uh, Rethink Priorities will actually be discussing this exact question later today. So 
if you think, if you're one of the people whose decisions might be significantly affected by changing your mind about which animals matter, uh, then I would really encourage going to this talk. Beyond that, um, my view about whether we should take future generations into account was shaped by a thought experiment derived from an academic philosophy paper. And there are a bunch of examples of people changing their mind based on uh, about these particularly seemingly intractable questions about which beings matter. If you want to challenge your beliefs about which cause to work on, then I would really encourage you to consider whether you are missing some entire group of beings that matter. In particular, I think it's really valuable to think about groups which you think might matter. So you think probably not, but it's possible. I think that this is a good thing to do because it's worked in the past. The areas that the effective altruism community is focused on today are all examples where most people treat some group as if they don't matter or sort of not their problem. So in the case of global health, most people behave as if people in other countries either don't matter or are just not our responsibility in some way. Similar for criminal justice reform and immigration reform. Farm animals, another great example. Um, if people acted as if the animals that end up on their plate matter, obviously the world could look very different. Um, and future generations don't get a say in basically anything, even though it's quite possible that a lot of the decisions we make today, for example, around climate policy, um, will have very large effects on um, people alive in hundreds of years. So historically, groups which most people treat as if they don't matter, but who may well matter, have been good places to look for key issues to work on. So next, what can we actually do? Maybe you end up thinking that some surprising group matters. You obviously also need to be able to do something to help them. For example, if there, imagine there are aliens that think and feel, but they're so far away that we could never interact with them. In that case, even if there are many such beings, our decisions will probably not be affected by that fact. Something that seems like very much an open question to me is, can we do useful, robust things to help wild animals? Excitingly, um, I've also seen that the people from Wild Animal Initiative and Animal Ethics will be speaking about this tomorrow. So yeah, if you think this might affect your decisions, go to that talk. Regarding future generations, the number of beings that could live in the future is clearly immense, but it's only useful to think about all future generations as a group if there's something we can do which actually affects that whole group. One possibility is if there are cases where um, we can avert uh, a global catastrophe that would basically cause future generations to not exist at all. Um, and so there are, a bunch of, uh, there are a bunch of talks at this conference um, on these kinds of topics, but I'm actually going to highlight a talk uh, outside of the conference, which is on Friday, um, by Toby Ord. Um, as the title suggests, it's focused on these quest this question of, is there, are there any things that um, could essentially uh, prevent this huge group of all future generations from existing? And if so, what can we do about it? Obviously a key question for whether to work on, thing, work on this kind of thing. Um, a logistical note, the other talks that I've mentioned are all 
at this conference. And so if you are watching this as a recording after the conference, watching my talk as a recording, then you will be able to find the other talks online too, most likely. Um, I'm not sure if this one, Toby Ord's talk, is being recorded. And so if you're watching this after the conference, then I would recommend uh, his book, The Precipice, which was out this year. So these are just a couple of examples of questions of, can we actually do anything to help this group, some particular group? Um, some way, these are examples of lines of inquiry, uh, which give us a sort of qualitative understanding of what's possible. I'd like to end with an encouragement to ultimately make your decision of what to work on quantitatively. In particular, I want to make sure that you don't fall into a sort of drop in the bucket mindset. So often things feel like very small contributions compared to the, the problem that they're trying to address. In many countries, there's the phrase a drop in the bucket for this kind of thing that feels very small compared to a big problem. Sometimes though, this seeming drop in the bucket is in fact still very big. For example, say you can do something like save a life every year by donating a chunk of an average graduate salary. Some people react to this by, by saying, well, it's just one life against the backdrop of almost 400,000 malaria deaths the same year. Now, on the one hand, this is totally true. It is, in some sense, a drop in a bucket against when you compare it to the problem at large, problem as a whole. But of course, that's still life and death to that person and their family. Um, so this feeling of small progress on a big problem, sometimes feeling very unsatisfactory or very unmotivating, is actually really unreliable as an indicator of whether what you're doing is important. So I'd really encourage you not to rely on that feeling and to really try to figure out how much you would achieve by working on something. Really try to bring out the numbers and figure out what the bottom line is. Um, this is, I think, particularly important when you're trying to compare whether to work on helping some really large group that's kind of hard to help or some small group that's relatively easy to help. Sometimes our intuitions about whether um, which of these is better to do can be really thrown off by this kind of thing um, and can end up horribly, horribly wrong. Um, so you really need to break out the numbers, look at your bottom line, figure out how much you would actually achieve. If this seems like a potential next step for you, then I would really recommend going to Zach's talk, um, which is later today, in fact. I believe that this talk will focus on comparing interventions, so particular things that you could do within some broader course, but ultimately the same kinds of skills and a lot of the same ideas apply to the question that I'm interested in right now, which is, if I worked on this particular course, how much am I going to get done? How big a deal would it be if I worked on this thing? How, how big a deal would it be if I worked on this other thing? So to summarize, first, what even matters? In particular, which beings are morally relevant? Then, what can we do about it? Broadly, what are the options for affecting those beings and using numbers to ultimately decide what to do? Some quick tips as we finish. So first of all, you've probably noticed that this talk only just scratches the surface. Around 2014, 2015, alongside my job as a trader, I spent a lot of my evenings and weekends thinking about this question, which causes to work on, 
before I had, for a whole year, before I had any idea what I was doing. The good news, of course, is that you're not alone. The, this community cares a ton about this question. So nowadays, there are resources available to make your life easier and to give you a head start. I'd really encourage using those things, making use of what's already been done. Um, it will be, you'll get a lot further if you build on what other people have done um, rather than try to figure everything out from scratch. Also, on the topic of you not being alone, um, have conversations with other people at the conference. Um, not only do other people here uh, potentially have already thought about this, um, but also even the people who haven't thought about this will be coming up with the, thinking about which questions uh, they will want to pursue. So I'd really encourage you to um, ask people which questions would change their actions, which, which questions would matter um, to their decisions. Because it's possible that questions that other people have identified as really relevant to their decisions will also be relevant to you. For now, I think that we have about 10 minutes for Q&A. Thank you so much for that talk, Kit. I see we've had a number of questions committed, uh, submitted, um, so we'll go with those. Firstly, I had a quick question. Um, you talk about cause area prioritization resources in the community. Um, it would be great if you could flag what those, what those are. Great, of course. Um, so one set of resources are 80,000 hours um, problem profiles. So they're really user-friendly and give you a sense of what working in an area might actually involve. Um, Open philanthropies, um, shallow, medium, and deep reviews of uh, cause areas are also really useful. So if you go onto the Open Philanthropy website and look under their cause prioritization resources, um, they have these really good um, overviews of what's, what can be done in the area, who is already active, um, and that kind of qualitative overview of, of what it would even involve to work on something. More specifically, obviously, GiveWell and, uh, has been doing work for well over a decade um, on um, what can be done in global health and uh, uh, ACE, likewise, animal charity evaluators. And also, um, if you're looking at more specifically what to do in those areas as an individual, um, the ideas for uh, charities that might be excellent to launch that Charity Entrepreneurship has come up with are another really good resource for figuring out what it might actually look like to do work in an area. Great. So um, one of the audience questions, what should a person do if they have quite a few things they care about? Yeah. So first of all, this is a really good problem to have. Um, I think that one of the uh, common themes in the effective altruism community is being open to working on many different things, caring about a lot of different kinds of beings. Um, and so it's definitely, yeah, definitely a good problem. And like, welcome to the community. I hope you're um, I hope you're excited about working on many different things. Um, obviously, at the same time, um, you only have one career. And so you have to decide what you're going to do. Unfortunately, it's often most effective to specialize, to become really excellent at working on one thing, um, rather than try to work on many things at the same time. Although that can sometimes be a good idea. Um, and so, yeah, you face this trade-off of um, having the open-mindedness and the, the caring to consider many different things, but ultimately uh, you may have to prioritize between those things and try to figure out which is the best thing to work on. Absolutely, and I guess it's um, early on in your career if you develop things like research skills, but then you update on specifically what cause area you're focused on, you do get to take some of those skills with you. 
yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, often, um, yeah, often you will change your mind about things over the course of your career. Um, so uh, in particular, expect that if, if you haven't yet thought much about cause prioritization, it's very likely that if you think deeply about it, you'll end up deciding to work on something that you're not currently working on. Um, so very early on in your career, and especially very early on in your thinking about cause prioritization, um, there are like two things you want to be doing. One is thinking a lot about cause prioritization. Um, and the other is, is keeping your options pretty open and building, you know, working on things, building skills that could be are likely to be useful to um, something that uh, whatever you end up working on. But at the same time, um, because of the value of specialization or like how it's often quite valuable to specialize, um, you do want to be um, approaching some kind of best guess of what to work on and then, like, uh, you know, going really hard on that one thing um, and getting really excellent at it. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, yes, th uh, things will change as you learn more. But at the same time, uh, I hope that at some point you will um, have some sense that you're not likely to change your mind that much further and be able to um, specialize and, you know, move on uh, in a specific direction, aiming at a specific goal. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, so early career, do you think it's better to plan to work on your current cur course prioritization, having thought about it reasonably seriously? Or is it better to assume that your own course prior will change considerably as you age and learn more? Yeah, so definitely, definitely, uh, this essentially depends on how much you've already thought about it. Um, and you'll often, I think once you've, once you've thought about course prioritization a fair amount, you can often get some sense of how much you're likely to change your mind in the future. Um, for example, you can simply ask, what would change my mind? Like, what would I have to discover um, in order to work on something other than my current best guess? And of course, as I mentioned in the talk, like, if you find it plausible that there's some entire group of beings that you haven't even considered yet, or something like that, then it's pretty likely that you'll end up changing your best guess a lot. Um, and potentially working on something very different to your current best guess. Um, but if you ask that question of what would I need to discover to change my mind, and you discover that the kinds of things you would have to learn are just pretty hard to resolve or pretty hard to make any further progress on, then maybe you should just be running with your current best guess. Um, and after some amount of time thinking about this, which could be, you know, you could be months, could be decades, um, then there will potentially come a time where you really don't expect to change your mind that much further. Um, and ultimately, it'll, you'll have to you know, make that guess yourself by asking that question of, of what would change your mind um, and how, how likely is it that you would discover such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, great. Talking about things that have perceptions that have like, changed over time. How have your views of earning to give as a career track uh, changed over time? Yeah. So I began my career earning to give um, and I'm basically pretty happy that I did that. But of course, I'm not doing that currently. So what changed? Um, Many years ago, uh, 80,000 hours used to list a specific set of four criteria, which I think went something like um, perhaps you have a strong comparative advantage in a high earning job, or you're particularly concerned to keep your options open, or you're at the very beginning of your career and building you know, broad career capital could be very useful. Um, and you know you actually think you can donate very large amounts of money, uh, or like in, in the sense of you're willing to give a large fraction of your wealth. Um, and I guess for me, um, I began to think less that I had a strong comparative advantage in a high earning job. Um, mm -hmm. And as I learned more about different causes, um, I became less concerned with keeping my options open. 
So earning to give is actually very good for that. That's why it was one of the, these criteria. Earning to give is excellent for keeping your options open because obviously money is a fungible resource. You can use it to further many different causes. Um, and so overall, I think that um, there have been a few like big systematic changes, like major funders funding the kinds of things that I think are most important, which is amazing. Um, but overall, the reasons for me changing careers were also to some extent these, these straightforward things about myself, like deciding that I um, no longer needed to keep my options quite so open as before, because I had stronger views on what I wanted to achieve. Great. So I think we're into our final minute here. So I'll ask uh, the very last question that we have time for. Um, so how do you suggest we stay open to uncertainty and to changing our minds? Um, it's so easy for us to get very attached to our work or tie our identities up in what we choose, even if our values or the evidence might point in a variety of directions. Yeah, this is one of the um, things I most love about um, social events related to effective altruism is that often uh, they are an opportunity to, to indeed recognize our uncertainty and become more open to changing our minds. Uh, in particular, simply talking to people who are working on different things to yourself, trying to understand why they do that, um, and trying to see if anything that they think would change your mind about um, what, what you would do um, is super useful. Um, so for example, when I uh, started a, a group for altruistic people in my previous industry, um, this was a big focus of the meetings that we held. People talking to each other, finding out what each other were working on and finding out why um, and mm -hmm. learning from that. Yeah, I have to say I've, I've personally benefited from this as I attended uh, the EA London finance, finance meetups that uh, Kit organised and they were they were brilliant. So I, I very much echo that. Um, great, mm -hmm. that's about all we have time for. Um, so please do reach out to Kit to discuss which cause to work on. So Kit Harris, Zachary Robinson and Ben Snowden are all listed in the coaches section of the event. So that means they're happy to help you explore which causes matter to you and why. Uh, and with that, thank you so much for your time, Kit.